0: Now to continue in worshiping the Lord this morning, it's now time for the exposition of God's word, and we will pick up where we left off last Sunday, and that is Romans chapter 12, as we will look this morning at verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. The title of the message is Spiritual Worship as Living Sacrifices of God. And I'm going to ask the congregation to stand as we read God's word this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, I ask now by the power of your Spirit, Enable me in the power of your spirit to proclaim the truth before us this morning. And also according to the ministry of your spirit, enable your people to see it as it is, to receive it with joy. And for anyone here this morning who is not a believer saved by grace through faith in your son Jesus Christ, may today be the day That you grant them eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, that they may be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we enter a new major section in the book of Romans this morning. This is the watershed of Paul's magnum opus, if you will. This is epistle written to the church. At Rome, in the middle of the capital city of Rome, the superpower of its day, a city that styled itself as the Eternal City, the Eternal City, really. For that city, by the middle of the fifth century, would be uh, it would be proven otherwise. That it's anything but eternal. It would self destruct and become a desolate ruin, trampled by the Gulfs, this great military power of Rome, trampled by those who had no military (laughs) to speak of. But there in the first century, right here in Rome, is a Christian church. And for 11 chapters, Paul has defined for us the grand subject of God's gospel it's his gospel. That is his majestic scheme of salvation. In chapters 1 through 3, we learned of the depravity and sinfulness of man. That man has a major problem. And man's problem is the righteousness of God. In chapters 4 and 5, we learned about the doctrine of justification. That is God's solution to man's problem. God's solution to man's problem is... The righteousness of God. Man's problem is the righteousness of God. The only solution to man's problem is the righteousness of God. That is, his righteousness made ours by faith, all of which is on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done alone. That's the only way to be saved. Therefore, you must be saved from the wrath of God. Because he's righteous. And then in verses 6 through 8, we learned of the doctrine of sanctification. That is, that as believers, we are now dead to sin. We're alive to God in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin or of sin. We're now slaves of righteousness. Does that mean we're perfect? Anybody? (laughs) Do we still sin? Yes, but we are no longer in rebellion against God. He, He has reached us and he's brought us in, granting us. Grace that saves. And then in chapters 9 through 11, they define for us the role of Jews and Gentiles in redemptive history, for which we have spent the last, I don't know how many number of weeks looking at, providing us just a glimmer of the incomprehensible, infinite knowledge and wisdom of God. And there's only one conclusion to all that. The conclusion of chapters 1 through 11, Paul provides the great doxology, of verses 33 through 36 in chapter 11, the last verse of which says, For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Here then in chapter 12, we are met by the word therefore. Therefore, because of these 11 chapters and all that God has provided us in salvation, he establishes now the conclusion of a previously established argument. So Paul, at this point, is reaching back to the content of the first 11 chapters in order to propel us forward in exhortation. Moving us from doctrine to duty. In doctrine, the saved sinner has shown the exalted, eternal position that we now have because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he makes an exhortation for a holy life. Which is not only reasonable, but also possible. Amen? It's also possible because we're in Christ. Our nature has been transformed. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Now, everything Paul tells us in this section is the application, once again, of all the doctrine that we have learned and that he has set forth in all these previous chapters. That's where the word, therefore, takes us from and is propelling us into. What does this life now look like? See, Paul's concern is that these Christians live like Christians. It's really simple. You're saved, so live as though you're saved. Your blood-bought, live as though you're blood-bought. So he says, I appeal, I appeal to you, therefore, making a clear distinction from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. All right? Orthodoxy to orthopraxy. That's where we're going. From the precepts of salvific grace to the, pro, to the practice of those saved by grace. That's the therefore. The the church that is saved by grace is now shaped by grace. Amen? You're saved by grace. He doesn't leave you there. He now shapes you according to his grace. Now, this is a largely Gentile church. And a largely Gentile church that's saved by grace will look as though Israel ought to have looked as the people of God. I think this is Paul's part of Paul's strategy of making Israel jealous. You remember chapter 11 and verse 11? Paul says, through their trespass, Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Recipients of divine grace, a people who were no people, called by God, to God, made a people of God. That's the Gentiles. You know, the church saved by grace is a remarkable place, is it not? It's a remarkable place, or it certainly ought to be. A people living in supernatural harmony, living in supernatural unity, overcoming worldliness, overcoming evil, overcoming selfishness by the power of the residing presence of God the Holy Spirit who has a changing effect on an unbelieving world. And Paul's aim here is that the church at Rome simply be like the church, living life that actually validates the message because the message is its his message, amen? We're recipients of that message. And he says, now, therefore, as recipients, this is now how you shall live. And living like this will validate something of that which comes out of your mouth. So, let us be clear. The Christian life is not do this and live, right? That's not the Christian life. But instead, instead, I have given you life, therefore, this is now how you shall live. That's the message. So doing is, is not something through which we obtain acceptability with God. See, that's how the world thinks. If you just do enough, if you're just good enough, God will accept you. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. That's called self-righteousness. It's funny that the world looks at the church, you're just self-righteous. No, we're recipients of grace, baby. We know we can't do it. Well, I'm just a good person. That's self-righteousness. What an irony. This is Matthew 5.14, where Jesus said, Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Amen? Amen? That's light illumined by those who've embraced grace because they're embraced by the arms of God's goodness and grace. Now, for many in the church, grace is the music that plays in the background of their lives. It's just continually playing in their head. They're continually aware of God's kindness. They think much of God. They think correctly about God. And as they grow, they think less and less of self. There's a good many Christians who live like that. On the other hand, there are some Christians, just as much saved, where the background playing in their mind is their own grumbling song thinking mixed thoughts about God. They have a kind of assorted philosophy about God and many exalted thoughts of self, all of which are in the process of being sanctified. Amen? (laughs) Loved, chastened, disciplined, because God disciplines those he loves, and we all grow together as a body, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has already conveyed for us his understanding of Christian living that is according to grace. You remember back in chapter 6, verse 11, he said, So you also must consider yourselves dead to what? Sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In chapter 7, in verse 6, Paul spoke of the Christian life as life in the Spirit. When he gets to chapter 8 and verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God sons and daughters of God. The only people who can be led by the Spirit are those who have the Spirit. They have the Spirit. And here in chapters 12 through 15, Paul will discuss now how that truth is made visible for those or through those whom God has justified by way of his saving grace. We see it played out. By way of instruction. That is faith in Christ alone. Christians perform good works, beloved, not to be justified, but because we're justified. Do we understand this? This is very important. No one does anything in order to be justified. Being justified means you're declared free from all blame because your faith and trust is in Christ alone. Now, therefore, because you're declared free from all blame, we live like this. Set apart, as we shall see. You see, this is why Reformation theology, otherwise known as biblical theology, is so liberating and loved. Amen? It's liberating and it's greatly loved because it puts practical Christian living in its proper place. It's the product of something that God does, it's not to earn something from God. Our status is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's our status. You know, beloved, you're saved by works. That should lift your head. But not your works. No one's saved by their works. You're saved by works, but not your works. It's Christ's works on your behalf. It's his life first in your place. It doesn't just take the death of Christ in your place. It takes his perfect life in your place. And then his death, which was coming under the punishment of God as a substitute In your place. His righteousness. His substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf. Not your good works. Not your attempt at self-righteousness. You see, that's grace. And that's what we, through faith, have embraced. Jesus Christ, the one who did all the work. And it's out of and because of him that we are commanded, enabled, and hopefully wanting, hopefully wanting to live righteously for the glory of his name. Now, there has been over the past number of years a growing movement within Christianity of a people coming under Embracing and applying in their daily lives and practice a reformed doctrinal view of Scripture. And that has indeed and is a great blessing. Let me get one big amen. amen. Unfortunately, there has also been a growing number of people embracing only part of reformed doctrine. Reform meaning coming from the Great Reformation and how the reformers protested against Roman Catholicism and works-based effort and earning your way to heaven and all that type of thing. And what many Christians are embracing, praise God, is a covenantal view of redemption. In other words, there's always been one way God has saved sinners. That is according to his grace alone. Old Testament, New Testament, one way to be saved. They're affirming the five points of soteriology By way of the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. They embrace that. Amen. They embrace the five solas of the Reformation. Salvation comes by way of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scriptures alone, all for the Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. That's great. But at the same time, many who are embracing these grand, great biblical truths view Christian liberty, and we're free in Christ, they view Christian liberty, unfortunately, as moral indifference. That's the sad part. The result, as Joel Beakey points out, is that people bow before the doctrine of God without yearning for a vital spiritual union with the God of the doctrine. Leave it to Beaky. I'm not done with quoting Beaky yet. (laughs) See, what they do is they view sanctification, that is, growing in holiness, as a kind of disengaged, magical let-go-and-let-God way to spiritual maturity. If we have the Spirit, we're not disengaged, amen? We're not. However, sound, biblical, reformed doctrine through preaching and teaching and fellowship is an engagement not only of the mind but also of the soul and a very commitment of life itself. That's biblical. That's biblical, reformed doctrine. You can say amen. Glory. Joel Beakey goes on to say, along with... Uh, Mark Jones, in their recent work, A Puritan Theology, subtitled Doctrine for Life, he said this, the genius of Reformed doctrine is that it marries theology and piety. Piety simply meaning the fear of God, reverence for God. Okay, It marries theology and piety so that the head, the heart, and the hand motivate one another to live for God's glory. Glory? Glory, Amen. That's the balance. That is correct faith leading to practical faith, living faith. Biblical orthodoxy that exhibits biblical orthopraxy, and that's where we are in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Are you with me today? Are you with me today? All right, then let's proceed. Here in verse 1, Paul says... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your translations may say reasonable service. I like that better. Reasonable. Is this reasonable? This is reasonable. What, you're safe from the pit of hell? You're saved from the lake of burning sulfur and fire? You're going to be glorified like the one who came to save you? Is it not reasonable that we live like he wants us to live? Amen? Oh, yes. So by way of application, Paul is calling us for, for he's calling for us here to bring a thank offering to God, basically. To bring a thank offering. And he's hearkening back. Paul's a theologian. The New Testament wasn't done yet, the brother was writing it, amen? So he's hearkening back to what we know as the Old Testament and the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. And that was to lay a sacrifice upon the altar. The offering of bulls and goats or lambs or doves. Which had to be killed before they were laid upon the altar. So here then is the idea of giving something up. But there's more than that. This is more than giving something up. This is an idea of expressing something. This is expression, an expression of worship, just as we have done this morning. Okay, we gave tithes and offerings, right? That's an expression of worship. We've prayed. We've praised him. We've exalted his name. We're now preaching his word. These are all expressions of worship. Did you know that preaching the word is an expression of worship? You're worshiping God right now. If you're saved, you're worshiping God. Because worthy is he of our devotion. Amen? Worthy is he of our giving. Worthy is he of our time. Worthy is he of our praise. Worthy is he of our very lives? Yes. Which is to say the sacrifice of the new covenant isn't bulls and goats, but rather a sacrifice of the people of God. Not of martyrdom, beloved. We're not talking about martyrdom here. But a giving of ourselves to the service of God. And Paul's appeal here is anchored in something, beloved, that's given to us. You know what it is? It's right there in the text. Mercy. The mercies of God. It's anchored in what he's given us. The mercies of justification, sanctification, glorification. It's beautiful, isn't it? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The exhortation of which is holy living to be obeyed in view of all that he has given us. It's a response to grace, which means unmerited favor. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. I deserve to be Punished with a capital P forever and ever. But because of his grace, I'll never see it, I'll never smell it, I'll never taste it because he bore it all on the cross. Every bit of it. We're objects now of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work of shaping us by grace. So he says, present therefore your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present, it means to exhibit. It means to offer. It means to put at one's disposal. It's the same word that Paul used back in chapter 6 and verse 13 when he said this. Notice, do not present your members, your hands, your feet, your legs, your eyes, your ears, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for... You can say it. You can say it. You can, you can only speak when I ask you to speak. <laughs> Other than that, this is a monologue. And an occasional amen is great. No, we don't want anyone up running around doing spiritual laps or something crazy like that. Amen. So here's the offering of body parts, members, the whole body to God as instruments of righteousness. Deliberately expressing, you see, our new identity in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20, you were bought at a price. What does he say? The result is therefore honor God with your with your body. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Present, Paul says, back in Romans, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, living sacrifice. Now there's a combination of words that don't match and in essence become an oxymoron. You know, like hospital food. No offense to you beloved brothers and sisters that we're in a hospital. Or, or virtual reality. Or country music. (laughs) Oh, I'm so joking with you all. I have a friend of mine who's black from the Bronx. And he listens to country music. And I listen to Earth, Wind, and Fire. (laughs) He loves the elements, too. Earth, wind, and fire the elements. We both love the elements. But he's a country guy. I cannot, I can't get there. Okay, now, that is all said in jest, but something like a round square doesn't exist, truly doesn't exist, any more than a living sacrifice exists. The idea of a living sacrifice is illogical if we think in Old Covenant terms, because anything that was brought to the altar was dead and divided on the altar. No chance of moving. However, the logic of the gospel is the only sense in which a living sacrifice makes sense. Right? It's the only sense. By the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've been made alive in Christ, called to give all for Christ. Salvation is a free gift that cost Christ everything, enabling for us to give our entire being in response enabled by the presence of the holy spirit not just body actions not just going through the motions of, ser- of serving with a detached heart he's not talking about that at the same time he's not talking about mere inward disembodied worship you know saying well i i go to church and serve jesus with my heart but they never go to church People say that. Why don't you go to church if you're a Christian? Well, I I go to church in in my heart. No, you don't, because you're not there. That's nonsense. It's all of you, he says, given as a living sacrifice. He doesn't say heart given or soul given. It's all of you all given, your whole body, all of you. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. That is, present yourself, your person, your inner and outer self, the whole living being, as a sacrifice for worship. Can you do that perfectly? Oh, no. Because there's too much of you in the way. And there's too much of me in the way. And this is what he's sanctifying out of the way. Right? (laughs) Right? sanctifying us, growing us in holiness. We learn to to, to kill the flesh. I fight against this every day and I'm tired of fighting against it. And that's why I can't wait until he comes back because then it'll be all over. War's been won, battle goes on, can't wait till the battle's over too. We're glorified just like our Lord. Just think about fellowship like that. No sin, no flesh to get in between us forever and ever (laughs) And ever, amen, can't wait. More because I'm sick of myself than I'm sick of you. (laughs) And you'd say the same, amen? He wants a living sacrifice which is holy, back to the text, and acceptable. You see, beloved, we're the only people that are holy and acceptable because of what Christ has done. So you are holy, and you are acceptable positionally, right? We don't want to mix position and practice up. You're positionally right in Christ. You're holy and acceptable. Now we live out the basis of that declaration. Because you're holy, because because you're accepted, on the basis of his glorious work, he wants a living sacrifice that is consecrated, set apart. That's what holy is, hagios, to set apart. Set apart for God. The whole body of the believer is at the this, this disposal of God, set apart for a pure and righteous purpose. There's a distinction there. You know why? Because pagan Greek worshippers who worshipped every other god they could make up in their mind also used hagios. They set themselves apart for pagan practice to these false gods. And it wasn't holy practice. It was drunken orgiistic practices gluttony, and everything else that you can think of. But don't think of it now. How do we do this? Paul's going to explain how. And he begins in the negative. Many Christians do not like to hear in our day, do not preaching. Don't be telling me what not to do. I'm a recipient of grace. Right? Time for them to grow up. Time to grow up. Time to wake up. Because living in a fallen world is recipients of grace. God has some do nots for us. Amen? Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Now he's going to show us how. How do we live like this? Well, don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable and perfect. Beloved, whether you realize it or not, we live in the midst of a culture much like the believers in Rome in this day, first century. Very much so. That is, in the midst of a culture that perpetuates and honors conformity, it's honored a secular people who think and talk and philosophize and and make cliched metaphorical, metaphorical vernacular that they all share in and are being shaped by. Okay? Much like Rome. And as the world continues on its fallen course, many believers, recipients of the mercies of God, fall prey to conforming to culture where they mistakenly begin to adopt the philosophies of the world and anything else that comes down the pike that is not of a biblical worldview. This is the warning. So Paul now draws a vivid contrast for God's people dwelling in the midst of a lost and dying world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of what? Thinking. You got to get your mind right. We continually have to get our mind right. So here's a contrast between what we're exhorted to do and to be, while at the same time being warned what not to do and what not to be, as recipients of mercy. Both of which have to do with what's known as morphology. Morphology, the study of structure, the study of forms. The, the study of, of forms in particular, the, 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 the English root word of form can describe body, shape, figure, or style. Conforming to or being shaped or formed to or towards something or someone else other than Christ, the one who's shown us mercy. Are you with me? So Paul makes a distinction. He draws a sharp contrast here between conformity and we'll call it transformity, transformation. As recipients now of gospel grace, we're not to be conformed but dis. Instinctively transformed. Why? Because it is so very easy for us. It is so easy to be blindly conformed to the world, to its philosophies, to its traditions, to its deceits, to its principles without ever realizing it. That's why Paul warned the church at Colossae with this. Beware, lest anyone cheat you. Now that word means to carry away his booty. When you would sack another army... You kill them all, and you take all their stuff. You carry it away. Beware lest you be carried away through philosophy, empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, the one who's shown you mercy. You know, the biggest black eye to the church is her conformity to the world's way of thinking. Biggest black eye. Those who become shaped and formed or styled in their thinking by the surrounding culture. That's why the church, much of the church thinks about divorce the same way the world does. That's why much of the for- church unfortunately thinks about homosexual marriage like the world or abortion or whatever. You don't hate these people who live like that, amen? but you can't begin to think like them or you can never get the gospel to them. Can I get a witness? And anything else that travels down the sewer line of a lost and dying world will produce nothing when it's adopted but nominal Christianity at best. And the result is that there will be no visible difference that can be made between the secularist and the professing Christian. Christians are to be non-conformists. Now, does this mean that we run away and join the Amish community? Th- give away your cars and start riding around horse and buggy? No. That's not what he's talking about. This is not becoming a people who don't go to movies or play cards or dance or don't mo- ride motorcycles, you know, God forbid. <laughs> this has to do with Worldliness. That is, to be conformed to the pattern of this age, thinking as unbelievers think, with regard to sin, with regard to the world, with regard to God and salvation first and foremost. That's what that means. Which leads to other kinds of conformity, no doubt. This doesn't really have to do with the man-made taboos of, you know, drinking or smoking or rock and roll. Okay? Okay? Well, he smokes. Must not be a Christian. So what? So what? He listens to rock and roll, heavy metal. Are you you safe? It's not about that. It may speak towards externals, amen? This may speak towards externals, but is primarily addressing the way we think, which does no doubt lead to all else. But we're not going to put a list on the wall about, you know, you can listen to this kind of music and not that kind of music, Right? If that were the case, I couldn't even be your pastor. (laughs) I love rock and roll. Uh, I enjoy it greatly. (laughs) Okay, so what's this thinking? Okay, just, we, we could spend all day here. Okay, but thinking like what? How does the world think? Well, number one, for example, thinking that mere religious ceremonies and practices have value before God. I mean, Paul did, not, Paul did not address that in chapter 4, clearly. Acts in and of themselves, signs, adhering to this, ceremonies. They have no favor before God if that's all you do. That's how the world thinks. Or, thinking about my rights. Expecting others to meet my wants and my needs and my desires. Well, according to verse 1 of chapter 12, living sacrifices don't run around crying, My rights. Adopting a victim mentality like the world. Or thinking like the world does, that you know, you're more insightful or more important than you are. That's how the world thinks. Notice what he says in verse 3. Which we're not going to look at today, but just, you know, overview for next week. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to what? To think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Or, thinking about taking care of numero uno. That's flooded the church in our day, has it not? It's about me. It's about taking care of self. But, he says, Paul says, by way of the Holy Spirit, you have to think of yourself, not in terms of self, but in terms of those people sitting around you. Look at verse 5. So we, though many, are what? One body in Christ, and individually, we're members of one another. You're not a lone soldier in this thing. Don't think like that. That's how the world thinks. Or thinking like a secularist. Getting all I can now. Um, I see a commercial, now I have to have it. You see, they're after your kids, your youth. They want your kids to think like that. If you see it, I have to have it now, Mom. Come on. Are you serious? And then, that, then the church adopts, as, adopts oftentimes that kind of thinking. Or thinking I'm owed something and shamefully exploit handouts. 1 Thessalonians 4. Work with your own hands. Be dependent upon nobody. It's really simple. And he says to the Thessalonians, look, if you don't work, you don't, you don't eat. Church. Thinking like the world that that my problems are because of others. Blame shifting. Okay, it's my environment. It was my parents, you know, they were divorced, that's why I'm a mess. Well, okay, that may be true, but you're still staying, you know, you still stand responsible for your own sin. Or it's my society, or it's my church. And then you know what we do when we think like that? We begin to categorize sin as something other than what it really is. Now it's an illness. Now, if a guy goes and shoots a bunch of people, okay, the world says, "Well, it's it's mental health which is the issue," and then the church adopts that, and then they recategorize sin as something other than what it is, thinking that good people go to heaven and bad people go to earth, uh, hell. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. I was watching uh, the Bill O'Reilly program. That's how he thinks. He's very good at what he does, but that's how he thinks. Okay? He's good at what he does, but he's no theologian. Okay? Thinking in ways that lead to the action of personal revenge. Verse 17. He makes that clear. Thinking that truth in Christ is absolute for me. Okay? That's an absolute truth for me, but I'm not going to trample on someone else's beliefs if they believe that the God of so-and-so leads them to heaven. Well, you know, I I agree with that. Even though Jesus is for me. That's thinking like the world. Or thinking that dogmatism, doctrine, that it's narrow-minded, unloving, intolerant. You see, if you adopt the world's thinking, that's how they think. Christianity is too dogmatic. It's it's, it's narrow-minded. It's intolerance. If you think like that, Christian, then you have to erase chapters 1 through 11 of Romans Get rid of it, throw it away, because it's all doctrine. Are you with me? Don't think like the world. Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., modern-day hero of mine. He was teaching a theological seminar one day, and he made an assertion from Scripture about God. A student in the class interrupts him and says, Excuse me, Mark, but I like to think about God as wise but not meddling. Compassionate but not overpowering, resourceful but not interrupting. That's how I like to think about God. To which Dever responded, Thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself. <laughs> but we're here to learn about God from the Bible. The world thinks like that. If God didn't meddle, you wouldn't be saved. People talk about, you know, Jesus is a gentleman, he'll only tap on the you know, the door of your heart and there's only a knob on the inside and you have to answer. Come on, are you serious? No, that's not true. That's not biblical. If he didn't kick the door in of your life, you wouldn't be saved. But I responded to him, that's right, because he enabled you to do so. Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Hebrews 3:13, "Exhort one another every day. exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Living in the midst of a cultural, social, opinionated context requires us to think very, very carefully. And if we start thinking like the world, we won't be thinking with a biblical worldview. We'll think all of that kind of nonsense. So he says, don't be conformed, shaped, or morphed into their way of thinking. You people in Rome are Christians first, Roman citizens second. You know how we conform to the world in America? We conform to, 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 to in America by thinking that middle-class American thinking will save us. It's pagan. Amen? But I'm a patriot. Good, so am I. Amen? I fly a flag in my home because I'm I'm a veteran. I love veterans. I love those who serve in the military. I appreciate those who serve in the military. That's not going to save you. Economics. Kind of boring to me, but some people are really into it. That's good. That's fine. But these are not God's priority for you. You're a Christian first, an American citizen second, just like the rose in Rome. You've met people. Well, because they're American, they think they're what? Christian. And better. Well, of course I'm going to heaven. I'm an American. That's pap and dribble nonsense. You are, Jesus said, the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, it's used to kill weeds. They grow up between paved stones, trampled under people's feet. The primary function of salt in this day wasn't flavoring as in ours, but preservation. You're the salt. Christ's disciples are to live contrary to worldly corruption, and it can't be done if we conform to it. Amen? Jesus went on to say, you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light Light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So conformity to the world for a Christian is what a basket placed over a lamp is in a house. It starts fires. (laughs) If it doesn't quench it out first. So he's simply calling for Christians not to be double-minded. Paul knows we're under pressure, beloved. We all face the world, and we want to be what? We want to be accepted. Do you not want to be accepted? I mean, look, I'm not looking for a fight from the world. I don't like it when people don't like me. Enough people in the church community don't like me. I really don't like it when the world hates me, too. I appeal to you, don't be shaped, conformed, morphed to the world, the culture, and its philosophy. That's why he begs us in first 1, because he knows we want to be accepted. That's the peer pressure at junior high. You remember that? Whew. You want to fit in. I had the wrong kind of tennis shoes in junior high. I wanted Nikes, man. And all my folks could afford were these shoes called skips. (laughs) So I would sit on the city bus. I had to take the city bus to school. Bunch of tough, raucous people. I had to learn how to fight. These people were so tough and so intimidating. I cut the little tag skips off of my shoes. I wanted to fit in. So I had to get a paper out and save my money to get a pair of Nikes, baby. <laughs> we, that's the pressure we face, even into adulthood. Don't fool yourselves. Right? Paul knows this. So he wants to reach our thinking, because offered bodies come with changed, what? Minds. Okay, hold on now. So we move from the negative to the positive in just a minute. So our, Paul says, look. Your thoughts can't be dominated by the prevailing thoughts about us, about what the world says is acceptable or what the world says is unacceptable or what the world says is politically correct or not. It must be dominated by what the Word of God says. It's really simple. You know what a chameleon is, right? Their colors change. They're like this lizard type of thing and their colors change according to their environment to protect them. And and one, one writer said this, he said, oftentimes we Christians become like chameleons placed on a brightly patterned rug. Right? You don't know what to do next. And I thought about a schizophrenic uh, um, chameleon. There's not enough colors you can change too, but you've got to try to fit in. Paul knows this. So I'll appeal to you. Think about God's mercies for you. When you're inundated by worldly thinking to shape you and form you and to talk like they talk, remember about the mercies of God. Amen. I need this. Do you? Every day. Every moment of every day. I love watching the news because I like to know how the world is thinking to simply test it in light of Scripture. Because, why? Because oftentimes the church is infected by it just as in Paul's day. Okay, now. He moves from the negative to the positive quickly. Notice, there's a positive. It's not just mere non-conformity, but transformation. Notice, the prefix trans in front of the word form means above and beyond. Above and beyond what? The way the world thinks. Don't be conformed here. Be transformed above and beyond all that with the truth. That is why, friends, if you're in a biblical church, this is a biblical church. If you're visiting here and you go to a biblical church, you're blessed. If you travel around. Go to some churches. They will not preach the word. They will not preach the word. There's a couple who listen to this church online in Europe who are an hour and a half from a healthy church. So they're starting their own little group in their little village I just got an email this morning about it. Isn't it great? So they listen online, and, and now they'll go. They'll minister to people in their community. I love that. I love it. He says, "Be transformed, metamorphile, metamorphus, transformation. It's the caterpillar to the butterfly. Caterpillars are ugly. The monarch butterfly is beautiful. Amen." And notice this he says be transformed by the renewal of your mind this is a present passive imperative now follow me here present passive imperative it's present tense which he's saying here be transformed or continue to let yourself be transformed christian this is a continuous non-stop action okay present tense used in the passive voice, which means he's not saying transform yourselves, right? You can't transform yourself. The transformation of a renewed mind comes by the work of the Holy Spirit via the word of God, okay? So it's present, it's a passive voice, but at the same time, the verb is an imperative. It's a command. Present, passive, imperative. That is... Believers are not entirely passive. We're to cooperate with who? The Holy Spirit. He's holy. He's the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. And we're commanded not to quench him, not to grieve him. And when we obey the word of God by faith, we won't quench him. And we grow in holiness because he's the Holy Spirit. And then, you see, we're able to demonstrate to a lost and dying world that not only is Christ alive, but he's alive in us. Amen? Man, I want people to see this in my life. And I get frustrated with me. (laughs) That's why we're always repenting. Amen? Repenting is a very good thing for the believer because the root of the word repentance means to have a change of mind the way we think. (laughs) We're constantly growing and changing the way we think by being transformed by the renewing of our mind according to the word of God, not to be conformed and shaped by the logic, quote unquote, or philosophy of the world. Great, isn't it? So Paul exhorts us, renew our minds by learning God's will as revealed in Scripture in doing so. Here it is. I'm closing. We will work out the right standing we already have in Christ. Justified by faith? alone. It'll be worked out in our daily lives. It will be made manifest in our daily lives. Wow, a person justified, declared free from all blame, God says, because of faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's how you're saved? That's right, brother. So repent of thinking like the world. If you're here this morning and all that thinking stuff, you say, oh, that's me. I believe there are many ways to God. You're either really confused or you're not saved. If you think there's many ways to God, I bid you, I appeal along with Paul to repent of that thinking and come and embrace Jesus Christ by faith alone. You can't do it. Your work's not good enough. It takes the work and worth of Christ in your place. And when you trust in him alone, the Bible says you shall be saved. And then you'll start to see change. He doesn't say go get cleaned up and then come. Forget that. You come now by faith. Now you're saying, what is this, an altar call? No, don't do them. You come where you sit. In repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He'll change your thinking. As the Spirit of God enters in and begins to conform you to the image of Jesus. Amen? You must be saved because you're already condemned come to Christ, you'll realize he took the condemnation in your place. You shall be saved. For this is the will of God for you, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, believer, your sanctification. And we will grow to know what is holy and what is acceptable to the God who has shown us so much. Grace and mercy. Mercies abound. Amen? May the Lord bless you in this truth. God's word for God's people, if you're not a believer and you have questions, don't hesitate to catch me at the door. Amen? Amen. Father, we do thank you for this uh, glorious, wonderful passage of Scripture. We Thank you for the journey of the last uh, 13, 14 months or so, the first 11 chapters, and now all of the application of that truth that's before us. Lord, may we maintain good balance in our lives, understanding our justified position is unchanging, it's unwavering. And help us as recipients of mercy and recipients of divine grace to desire to live our lives in response to all that has been accomplished for us. May you bless your people this day in spirit and truth for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we pray.